I'm not sure how many of you have ever been on a... Oh. Instructions from the wife, it's okay. Um, just remind you of the picture I used about our holiday we hope to take at the end of June. It's actually at Mana Pools National Park on the banks of the Zambezi. Wonderful place, but there's nothing there. And you can only reach there after driving three, mi- three hours on a tar road, having navigated through the, um, the formalities of our national park's office. And then you get onto a dirt road, which is so terrible it breaks axles and demolishes normal cars. You need, no- you need four-by-fours and good strong trailers. You can travel maybe 30 kilometers an hour for uh, about 60 kilometers, and it's dry and it's dusty. And if you're taking little kids in the car with you on a journey like that, what do they start to say? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Do you feel that way? <laughs> sort of exploring the town or the city of Amos. A difficult journey, I appreciate that. And we're traveling a lot quicker than 30 kilometers an hour. We're traveling quite quickly to try and get through. But I encourage you to, as much as possible, sort of stay together and stay, um, stay with us, stay with me. And uh, hope that we get a good picture of the city as a whole, but also some specifics as well, some details in our mind. Remember the layout of the city? There's an introduction, chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. The prophet who speaks, the lion who roars. Amos is bringing the message, but God is the one who is roaring. And then after that we have... When I stop like that, let me explain. (laughs) It's time for you to speak. After that, we have eight oracles of judgment, all right? The first six, I need to do this backwards, of course. The the first six are Damascus and Gaza and Tyre and Edom and Ammon and Moab, or Moab and Ammon, I'm not sure which way around that one is. Six nations, Israel saying, thank goodness the day of the Lord is coming against them and he's going to judge them. Seventh one is Judah, thank goodness God is going to judge them. Eighth one is Israel. And then from then on, chapter 2, verse 4, to the end of chapter 9, Focus upon Israel. Israel, I've got issues with you. I'm roaring, but I'm actually roaring against you. Quick reminder in chapter 2, the sin that Judah committed was the sin of just knowing God's word and not doing it. The sin that Israel committed was twofold. Number one, religious compromise, so false worship. Number two, social injustice, not caring for the poor, just enjoying their own luxury and comfort without thinking about others. And um, John pointed out to us in in our little prayer and fellowship group last night, the first six nations mentioned, those are war crimes. Those are war crimes. If you try and decimate a whole nation, that's genocide, that's a war crime. If you take a pregnant woman and you cut her open so that you can pull out while she's alive the living baby from her womb, that's a war crime. The six nations are war crimes. All Judah did was they had God's word and they didn't obey it. And all Israel did was they came to church pretending to be holy and not being holy And they lived in luxury and they enjoyed their comforts without thinking about the people who didn't have those luxuries and comforts. Surely those aren't that serious? And the whole point of Amos is, yes it is. Those are far more serious. After the eight oracles of judgment come? Three sermons. I love Andrew. Three sermons of rebuke, all right? Sermon number one is against Israel as a whole. And remember, God establishes the principle that, listen, you're privileged, that's why I'm going to punish you. With privilege comes responsibility, beginning of chapter 3. Then that cause and effect, cause and effect, cause and effect. The lion has roared. Aren't you going to be afraid? God has spoken. I've got to prophesy. I've got to talk. 
Remember, he calls the Philistines and he calls the Egyptians and he says, you guys, you're, you're terrible nations, but have a look at what Judah's doing, what Israel's doing. What they're doing is far worse than, uh, than what you guys have been doing. And then he goes on and he talks about the devastation that he's going to bring. And then the picture of the, the two little pieces of the two legs that the, the shepherd has, the little piece of a couch, that's all that's left after God performs his judgment. Chapter 4, second sermon of rebuke. He turns to the cows of Bashan. He looks at the women of Samaria who are living in luxury, enjoying the comfort. Very quickly, please remind me who gave them that prosperity and allowed for that comfort. Just remind me, please. God. That was a gift from God. Through Jeroboam II, the wicked king, God was the one who gave them that luxury and that comfort and that wealth. And what did they do with it? They said to their husbands, bring us more wine. And who cares about the poor? You're going to be carried out with meat hooks and with fish hooks. And then remember the end of the last uh, sermon, God says, you know, five times over, five times over. I did things, and I was trying to get your attention. Five times over. I did these things which in actual fact looked terrible, but all I was trying to do was to get you to listen to me, and you just would not listen. You wouldn't return to me. So because you wouldn't return to me, you're going to meet me. And that's how he ended the last sermon. You're going to meet me. Prepare to meet your God, O Israel. We come to the third of those three sermons of rebuke, chapters 5 and 6. And you notice how the tone changes at the beginning of chapter 5. Because the first two are kind of strong. Amos standing up and saying, you're really denouncing and it's strong and God has spoken, you haven't listened. And but when we come to verse 1 of chapter 5, hear this word which I take up for you as a dirge, O house of Israel. She has fallen. And she will not rise again, the virgin Israel. She lies neglected on her land, and there's none to raise her up. This is a funeral lament for Israel. And I think what it does is it shows us something of what we saw in the heart of the Lord Jesus when he looks out over Jerusalem and he weeps over Jerusalem. He knows Jerusalem is going to be judged, but he weeps over Jerusalem because over and over again God had sent the prophets and God had sent his message and he'd sent his messengers and they had rejected them. And now Jerusalem is going to be judged. It's the same thing here. God has spoken over and over and over again, and Israel will not listen. And now there's this lament. It's like a funeral. It's as though Israel has died. Those of you who love good poetry and love understanding what's happening in the Bible, read the book of Lamentations and read it out loud. How lonely lies the city that once was full of people. And Lamentations is a lament over Jerusalem, the southern kingdom. And it's a parallel, almost, of Amos chapter 5, which is a lament over the northern kingdom. And so this uh, third sermon begins with this sad lament as Amos sings a funeral dirge. Thus says the Lord God, verse 3, The city which goes forth a thousand strong will have a hundred left, and the one which goes forth a hundred strong will have ten left of the house of Israel. What I'd like us to do is I'd like us to pick up the themes again from this sermon. And uh, I'll mention them, and they, they're, they're stated in your little booklet. The first theme that we see running through are the sins of the people. So this first major theme running through this third sermon of rebuke, the sins of the people. And those sins are twofold. Number one, the sin of religious compromise. And secondly, the sin of social injustice. First of all, the sin of religious compromise, and that's verses 4 and uh, 5. Verse 4, there's a call for true worship. Thus says the Lord to the house of Israel, Seek me that you may live. 
Verse 5 is false worship. But do not resort to Bethel or come to Gilgal or cross over to Beersheba, for Gilgal will certainly go into captivity and Bethel will come into trouble. Now what are these three places, Bethel, Gilgal and Beersheba? Bethel, I mentioned to you, is one of the two shrines that Jeroboam I set up as a place of worship for Israel. Gilgal was the first place of worship after the entrance into the Promised Land under Joshua. Joshua chapter 4 and 5. So Gilgal was a special sacred place. Beersheba in the book of Genesis is a particularly significant place for Abraham and Isaac. So Beersheba was a third sacred place in Israel's history and in Israel's mindset. Notice what the Lord is doing. He's essentially saying, don't go to any place where there is religion practiced. Come to me. What is true worship? True worship is not going to church. Not going to Bethel, not going to Gilgal. True worship is seeking me and coming to me. External religious worship without true heart obedience is insufficient. And dear friends, please take that to heart. External religious worship, Christian worship, Baptist worship, Presbyterian worship is insufficient without the obedience of the heart. Remember, What God said in Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 29, verse 13, These people draw near to me with their words. They honor me with their lips. But, can you finish the sentence? Their hearts are far from me. There's an amazing, powerful picture in Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 4. And Jeremiah is um, foretelling even more imminently the destruction of Jerusalem than Isaiah did. And he says to the people, do not trust in deceptive words saying, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. Basically what the people were saying is, there's no way God's going to destroy Jerusalem. Do you know why? We've got the temple. And as long as we've got the temple, everything's fine. And Jeremiah is saying, no, don't, don't trust just having the temple. Don't trust the external. Those of you who know the book of Ezekiel, I think it's either chapter 9 or chapter 10. Do you remember the picture where the glory of the, God, where the, glory of the Lord rises up out of the temple? I don't know if any of you know. Read those. It's either 9 or 10. But Ezekiel has this picture of the glory of the Lord rising up out of the temple. And what happens? Even if you don't know, even if you don't know it, can you guess what happens? The glory of the Lord departs. What have you got left? A building. God's not there. Same sort of thing. You know, if you don't worship with your heart, if it's not true worship, if you're not seeking God, it's a building. It's nothing more. Don't go to Bethel. Don't go to Gilgal. Don't go to Beersheba. Don't go to Calvary Baptist. Go to Central Baptist. Seek me that you may live. So the first sin is the sin of religious compromise. That's verses 4 and 5. The second sin is the sin of social injustice. Just drop down, please, to verse 10. Social injustice. The heart of the people was such that, verse 10, they hate him who reproves at the gate, and they abhor him who speaks with integrity. Can you remember, God said, I gave you the Nazarites and I gave you the prophets. And you, may, you said to the Nazarites, have a glass of beer. That's modern Irish. right? Have a glass of beer. Drink wine. What do they say to the prophets? Remember, what do they say to the prophets? Shh, shut up. Shut up. Don't talk. I don't want to hear God's word. It's the same thing in verse 10. You see, what you've got are people who are righteous and they're saying, no, hold on a second, we shouldn't be doing this. The nation as a whole, the people as a whole, they hate him who reproves in the gate. 
They abhor him who speaks with integrity. What do they do rather than listening to those who are saying, this isn't right, we should be living lives that are right. You know, I've got a group of young people in our church. And I say to them, because they face the same struggles that you do in terms of sexual impurity and all of the terrible compromises and the pressures that come upon them. I say there's got to be one or two of you who live so uprightly that you confront by your lives the sinfulness of those around you. And yet the tendency is, as long as we're all sinning, it's fine. But we don't want somebody to stand up and seek to live a holy life. And that's what Israel was doing. Somebody was standing up to try and live a holy life. They hated him. They abhorred him. Look what they're doing instead. Verse 11. They're imposing heavy rent on the poor. They're taking advantage of the poor. I worked out in Zimbabwe. You know, for a poor person, in some of our high-density suburbs, they will pay $100 for a single room in a home where there are other families living, and their whole family will live in that single room at $100 a month. You go to our biggest mansions in some of our most affluent areas, and you check out the floor space. You get the square meterage, and you work out the square meterage of the mansion compared to that little room. You with me so far? And then who pays higher rent? Take a guess. Where'd you expect? Surely it's the mansion. It's not. It's the poor person. And I challenge you. Think about poverty around the world. Think about social injustice. Who are the people who get hammered more than anybody else? It's the poor. God takes that seriously. Israel didn't take that seriously. He continues on. You extract a tribute of grain from them. That's a horrible picture. (laughs) The poor have to pay rent. The landlord comes to the door. It's time for rent. We've got nothing. We're just about, we're sitting down about to have a meal. We've got nothing to eat. You're sitting down to have a meal, are you? That'll do. I'll take that. You exact a tribute of grain. You take the very food that they need to eat from them. Because of that, God says, verse 11, though you have built houses of well-hewn stone, you've got these lovely places to live in, you will not live in them. I'm going to punish you. You've planted pleasant vineyards, but you will not drink their wine. Because, and verse 12 is kind of scary, I know your transgressions are many, and I know your sins are great. You distress the righteous, you accept bribes, you turn aside the poor in the gate. It's an interesting expression, you turn aside the poor in the gate. You know, the gate was not just the place where you entered a city. The gate was the place where the elders of the city would sit down and they would arbitrate issues of justice. You remember Boaz and Ruth, when he was going to formally purchase Elimelech's um, or accept Elimelech's uh, ongoing responsibility? Where did he go to do that? He went to the gate. Everything happens at the gate. So this is not just, you know, you, you say you're not coming in the gate. What he's saying when you, you turn aside the poor at the gate, the poor come to the powerful for justice. And what happens? The powerful turn them away. don't know what it's like in Ireland. But in Zimbabwe, if you have a legal problem and you're a rich person, you're okay. If you're a poor person and you have a legal problem, you're history. I would imagine it's true in many places. It was true in Israel. They didn't care for the poor. Verse 13, Therefore at such a time the prudent person keeps silent for it is an evil time. Two possible interpretations there. The one is either that it's a waste of time talking. When there's so much wickedness around, when there's so much corruption around, It's not even worth talking. Or 
When the time of judgment comes, after all this wickedness, the prudent person knows this is completely justified. So there's a two possible interpretations. The one is, at the time that this happens, the prudent person says, I'm just going to keep quiet. I can't change the system. Or it could be that when God brings judgment because of this sin, the prudent person says, yep, yep that's right. I can't complain. So the first theme, the first major theme we see running through the passage is the theme of the sins of God's people. The second theme that runs through is God's offer of mercy and his call to repentance. God's offer of mercy and his call to repentance. Now I remind you that this chapter begins, this sermon begins with a funeral lament. There's a dirge, it's sad. Even God through his prophet is sad. God doesn't delight in the harsh judgment upon his people. He he doesn't love playing the part of a lion. We must understand that he does not love playing the part of a lion. He will bring judgment, but he'd rather not bring judgment. He grieves, he calls his people back. And will you notice in verse 4 and verse 6 and verse 14, three times over he says to his people, you need to return to me. Verse 4, seek me that you may live. Verse 6, seek the Lord that you may live. Verse 14, seek good and not evil, that you may live. God holds out the offer of salvation, of forgiveness to his people. He calls for repentance. The lion is still roaring. The lion is not yet silent. Now maybe some of you are thinking, well, how does this work in the light of the fact that clearly this is a book of judgment that is irrevocable? Remember chapter 1 and chapter 2, I will not revoke its punishment. God will judge his people. What I see happening here is God saying to Israel, you as a nation are history. I'm going to judge you. But you as individuals, each one of you, you can repent. You can repent. Seek me. Seek good. Seek life. Come, live. So even though I'm going to judge all of you as a nation, each one of you individually can respond. You can turn back to me. You've got the heart of God concerned about the individual holding out the offer of salvation, still roaring and longing that some might fear and listen. Have a look at verse 14 and 15. Verse 14 and 15 is the longest elaboration of this this call for repentance. Notice that true repentance is, is turning away from and turning to. Seek good and not evil that you may live. So it's, it's not just turn your back on evil, but it's seek for good. And thus may the Lord of hosts be with you just as you have said. If you do that, verse 14 is saying, God will be with you. Then you won't mind God being present if you turn around. Hate evil. Love good. Establish justice in the gate. And remember just before that, verse 12, you turned aside the poor at the gate. You abhor the one who reproves at the gate. Well, get the gate sorted out. Maybe, perhaps, the Lord God of hosts may be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. There's this wonderful little patch of blue sky in the cloud. This little beam of sunshine shining through the clouds where God says, I'll be gracious to you. This little remnant, if you turn back and if you repent. God's offer of mercy and his call to repentance. They notice thirdly that third theme here that uh, Amos develops is the lion roars. And I've called it there the terror of a present God while his people hold on to sin. And that was alluded to earlier on. Remember earlier on, um, at the end of uh, chapter 4, verse 12, the last sentence, prepare to meet your God, O Israel. That's not going to be a good meeting. That's not going to be a good meeting. 
You know, sometimes God's people say, Lord, please be present with us. Are you sure you want him to come? We say that so glibly, Lord, please be present with us in our meeting today. Are you sure? Are you sure you want him to come? Knowing what you're holding on to? Knowing your life? Knowing your hypocrisy? Are you sure you want him to come? See, the lament picks up in verse 16. Therefore, thus says the Lord God of hosts, the Lord. And now the lament is not just Amos. You see, Amos, as it were, lamented prophetically. These people are lamenting really. There is wailing in all the plazas and in all the streets. They cry, alas, alas. They call the farmer to mourning, professional mourners to lamentation. And in all the vineyards there is wailing. I want to stop there. Notice how comprehensive that wailing is, that lamenting is. The farmer mourns. Professional mourners mourn. In all the streets they mourn. In all the plazas, they mourn. In the vineyards. Why the vineyards? Extra serving of pudding, if you get the answer right here. Do you call it pudding? What do you call what you eat after lunch? Pudding, right. Okay. Americans don't call it pudding, right, uh, Michaela? What do you associate with vineyards? Why vineyards there's wailing? It's always good to ask questions of the Bible. It's a place of joy because what do you make there? Even Baptists make it. Wine. And what does the Bible say wine does? Makes the heart merry. You see, the place that you go to to make the heart merry is the place where there's going to be mourning. I don't know how we translate that. You know, the, the nightclubs, they'll be mourning. The theme parks, they'll be mourning. Kids' playgrounds. There'll be mourning. You see, there's this, there's this overwhelming mourning and lament. And what is the reason everybody is mourning? Look at the end of verse 17. Because I will pass through the midst of you, says the Lord. You know, please catch the, <clears throat> the punch. Why is everybody crying? Because God's going to pass through. I thought this is the God we wanted to meet. Well, no, not really. But he's decided to come. He's decided to come. Remember chapter 4, verse 12, Prepare to meet your God, O Israel. Now God is coming. And from verse 18 onwards, Amos develops this theme of, I will pass through the midst of you. He picks up the theme of the day of the Lord. Alas! You who are longing, verse 18, for the day of the Lord, for what purpose will the day of the Lord be to you? I see for the people of Israel, the day of the Lord is the day when God is going to come with power and he'll destroy his enemies and he'll set up his kingdom and Israel is going to be at the center and he's going to put David on the throne. They longed for the day of the Lord. You see, in their prosperity and in their comfort, well, they assumed that everything was right with them. They assumed that they didn't have to fear the day of the Lord. They thought that it was a day when God would judge the other nations, the bad people. You know, the prostitutes, the drug addicts, the pedophiles, the homosexuals. You know, those people, those bad people that we always think about. God's going to come and judge them. So, roll on the day of the Lord. But in actual fact, verse 18, 
What purpose will the day of the Lord be for you? It will be darkness and not light. It's not going to be a good day. You may remember, or you may not, but I pointed out that in the description of God in chapter 4, verse 13, the fifth colon, the fifth colon, those of you who study Hebrew poetry, all right, each line is a colon, the fifth colon there. The thir- sorry, the five colons, the uh, third colon, right in the middle. He makes dawn into darkness. See, we always think God is the God who turns darkness into light. This is the God who turns light into darkness. So at the end of verse 18 of chapter 5, the day of the Lord for you is not a day of light, it's a day of darkness. And in there is this lovely little picture, and Amos is so good at these lovely little pictures. As when a man flees from a lion and a bear meets him. He goes home, he leans his hand against the wall, and a snake bites him. What's the purpose of those pictures? You know, you're running, you're running, you're running from a lion, and you, you finally escape. Whew, thank goodness. And you turn around, and? and there's a bear. You get into your house, finally, I'm safe from all of those wild animals. You put your hand up on the wall, and a snake bites you. See, the picture is, you felt that you were secure, but when you felt you were secure... It's when trouble came. And so verse 20, Will not the day of the Lord be darkness instead of light, even gloom, with no brightness in it? The day of the Lord for you is a bad day. When God comes to his sinning and rebellious people, it's a terrible day. Principle number four, the worthlessness of worship without godliness. Or theme number four, sorry. The worship, the worthlessness of worship without godliness. There's no doubt that the central verses of the book are these verses 21 to 24. And they are amazing words. God now is speaking. Jehovah is speaking. I hate. I reject your festivals. Nor do I delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer up to me burnt offerings and your grain offerings, I will not accept them. I will not even look at the peace offerings of your fatlings. Take away from me the noise of your songs. I will not even listen to the sound of your harps. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Let's just unpack that if we may. Um, Notice what's being described here. There are these references to the religious activities of Israel, the people of God, their festivals, the religious feasts. Now they practice them in Bethel, but they practice them. So some sort of a Passover, some sort of a day of atonement, some sort of feast of the tabernacles. They went through the feasts. After the feast, the solemn assemblies, gatherings of God's people for worship, special meetings, congregational assemblies, worship times, burnt offerings. The people brought their, brought, brought their burnt offerings to make atonement for the sins that they had committed. Grain offerings, free will offerings, expressions of worship, not necessarily for sin, but just, Lord, thank you, you're good to us. Peace offerings, a sin offering, an animal offered to the Lord. Songs, songs within the temple, songs of worship. Maybe in Bethel and Dan, maybe in Gilgal, they sang these songs as well, these great songs that we sing, but Old Testament forms. And harps, the harps were the instruments that were used in worship. Now, God has mentioned all of those, the festivals, Um, 
solemn assemblies, burnt offerings, grain offerings, peace offerings, songs, and harps. He's referred to all of the worship of the people of Israel. Now notice, please, the words that are used to describe God's attitude, his opinion, and his feelings about that worship. And maybe you can participate now and shoot them at me. What are the words which tell us what God felt about those hate, despise, reject, will not look at? Abhor. Worth nothing. I will not listen. I hate, I reject your festivals. I do not delight in your worship services. I will not accept offerings for sin or offerings of thanks. I will not look when you bring a peace offering to me. Your, Your songs are nothing more than a noise to me. Take them far away. When your harps play the songs of worship, I will not listen to them. You see, God is saying... I'm not going to have anything whatsoever to do with the worship and religious ceremonies of the people of Israel. In fact, I have deliberately set myself against them. There's no positive benefit in any of these religious activities. They're meaningless in any positive sense, but they're meaningful to God in a negative sense. I hate, I reject, I detest, I will not accept, I will not look, take them away. Now remember the context. The context is the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is going to be bad. Why is the day of the Lord going to be bad? Because you're pretending on the outside what is not true on the inside in your worship. And you're living in complacent luxury and comfort and you're not thinking about those who don't have what you have. Remember the words of chapters, uh, verses 16 and 17. Wailing, alas, alas, lamentation. What would ever induce God to bring such a terrible day What would induce God to say, I don't care about any of your worship? The answer is in verse 24. Verse 24 is the center of the whole book. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. We must catch this. You see, there's a lack of godliness in the lives of God's people. God calls for two qualities. He calls for justice and he calls for righteousness. Righteousness is right living. Justice and essentially right living towards God. It's doing what's right in God's sight. Justice is right living in terms of others, dealing with them the way God deals with, wants you to deal with them. If you want to think of it, righteousness is like the first four commands of the law. Justice is like the last six commands of the law. My responsibility to God, I'm living right to God, and I'm living right to you. And God says, if you're not living right before me, and you're not living right to others, don't even think about coming to church. Because when you come, I'm not going to listen to you. In fact, I hate it when you come. Those are strong words. You know, what does God hate? God hates divorce. What does God hate? God hates hymns. They're both true statements biblically. You get that? If the hymns are sung when there's no justice in our lives, I'm trying to do what's right in terms of my relationship with other people. And there's no righteousness, I'm trying to do what's right in the sight of God living a pure life. Then God hates my sins. And people always jump on Malachi, God hates divorce. Sorry, he, he hates my singing, my hymns. He, he hates them. I detest them. Take them away. I'm not interested. Hmm. How many churches would close their doors if this principle was honestly applied? I wonder. 
See, I don't know Ireland very well. So one of the nice things about being a visitor is you can say these sorts of things. Because I don't know, you know, maybe none. But maybe some. And, and with all due respect and with deep love, because the lion roars, who shall not fear? The Lord has spoken, who shall not prophesy? I've got to say to you, when you sing on Sunday, does God listen? Or does God actually say, you're wasting your time and you're wasting mine? Because I don't see justice in your life and I don't see righteousness in your life. Remember God's speaking to us, dear friends. He's speaking to us today. And then will you notice the fifth theme that develops as this sermon progresses is the impossibility of hiding sin from God. Verses 25 to 27 are lovely verses. Did you present me with sacrifices and grain offerings in the wilderness for 40 years, O house of Israel? Uh, what is the answer to that question? So the question is, did you present me with sacrifices and grain offerings in the wilderness for 40 years, O house of Israel? We're going to do a vote. Gonna, everybody, you have to participate, right? So this is going to be a Zimbabwean vote. If you vote yes, you put your thumbs up. If you vote no, you put your thumbs down. Uh, if you don't vote, you don't get lunch. Mark's given me permission to make that no. But, okay, let's, let's participate, right? So, so if yes, they gave him grain offerings and sacrifices in the wilderness, you go like this. And if no, they didn't, you go like this. On the count of three, all right? One, two, three. No, no, yes, no. Some people are going like this, which is, you know, a good Irish way of being balanced. Okay, that's the answer. But they did. Because Moses set it up, set up the tabernacle, and the people started giving those grain offerings. What's that? How's that? How does that relate to what we're talking about? Look at verse 26. You also carried with you, along with you, Sikoth, your king, and Kiun, your images, the star of your gods, which you made for yourselves. Huh? <laughs> what is he talking about? Who is Sikoth? And who is Kiun? Well, you see, what God is saying is, you know, when you were handing, when you were giving me all of those grain offerings, I knew what you had in your tent. These are two idols brought out of Egypt. Small little idols which nobody could see. And so you went and externally, you went to church on Sunday, you went to the temple on the Sabbath, uh, or the tabernacle, and you presented your grain offerings, and then the day after, you went back into your house and you shut the, or your tent and you shut the flap. And you worshipped Sikuth, and you worshipped Kiyun. You worshipped your idols. Basically, God is saying, you know, Israel, this is nothing new. What you're doing now, you did back then. There's a pretense of worship on the outside, but there's the practice of idolatry, false worship on the inside. What's interesting is that Moses didn't see this idolatry, but God did. Moses didn't see the idolatry, but God did. And because of that, God says you're practicing the same idolatry as you always have. You're doing all these things on the outside that look pleasing, but on the inside you're worshiping idols. What am I going to do? Verse 27. Behold, I will make you go into exile beyond Damascus, says the Lord, whose name is the God of hosts. Worship without holiness is hated by God. Notice the Sixth and final theme that traces its way through this passage, this sermon. And that is the terror of God's judgment, chapter 6. 
The sermon concludes with a powerful statement of woe, and it is a woe to the people who claim to be the people of God. Verse 1, woe to those who are at ease in Zion. And a quick comment here, because some of you are sharp and you'll pick up Zion. That's Jerusalem. That's the southern kingdom. Yeah, there's a message to Zion as well. Because a little bit later, Isaiah and Micah are going to come and say exactly the same thing to Jerusalem and to Judah. You've got to repent. The difference is they did. Israel didn't. And to those who feel secure in the mountain of Samaria, you see, they were feeling confident and secure. The distinguished men are the foremost of the nations to whom the house of Israel comes. Now he's speaking to the big and the powerful people in Israel. And he says to them, go over to Kelne and look. And, and from there, go to Hamath the Great. And then go to Gath of the Philistines. Here's my question. Are they better than these kingdoms? Are you better than these kingdoms? Or is their territory greater than yours? What God is basically saying is, listen, you are no different as a nation, as a city. You are no different from those heathen nations. And they are being destroyed and you shall be destroyed. You're no different. You're no different because you're not worshipping me properly. You're just like the heathen nations. Do you put off the day of calamity? Would you bring near the seat of violence? And then he gives a picture in verses 1 to 7 of the ease of Israel. Look at that, how they're described in verses 4 to 6. Those who recline on beds of ivory. There's this picture of opulence again. And sprawl on their couches. You get this picture of, you know, everything's good and I'm fat and content and filled. They eat lambs from the flock and calves from the midst of the store. Lambs and calves, you know, they got so much they can eat the young. You know, it's better to wait till the animals grow and then there's a lot of meat. But no, we'll just take it while it's small because there's just so many of them. You improvise to the sound of the harp. It's interesting. What was the harp used for? What area of worship? Because remember, God says, I detest it. Sorry, what area of life? God says, I detest it back in verse, was it verse 23. It's in worship. But they are using the harp now just to compose little ditties and little songs. Like David, they've composed songs for themselves. They drink wine from sacrificial bowls. There's no sense of what's holy and what's right. They anoint themselves with the finest of oils. They're doing really well. End of verse 6, very, very important. Yet they have not grieved over the ruin of Joseph. And again, think context. The ruin of Joseph. You've got to be kidding, Amos. Look around you, buddy. Things have never been better. Kingdom's been extended. Economy is great. Education for our kids, and I've built a third house. What do you mean the ruin of Joseph? Oh, yes. The ruin of Joseph. I wonder how many people in the church are somewhat like this. Very comfortable, very complacent. You know, things are really good. Look around. You know, things are looking good. But we don't grieve over the ruin of Joseph. We don't grieve over the fact that the church is not holy, righteous, not filled with justice, full of hypocrisy and, and social injustice. Verse 8, the Lord has sworn by himself. He takes this so seriously, dear friends. And I, I don't apologize for going back to this theme because it seems God goes back to this theme over and over again. So please, if you go away from here and say, that guy kept on, please make sure that that guy is God, all right? Because all we're doing is going through verse by verse what God is saying. He is so strongly opposed to our hypocrisy. The Lord has sworn by himself, the Lord God of hosts has declared, I loathe the arrogance of Jacob and detest his citadels. 
the theme of citadels runs through Amos. The citadel was the stronghold. The stronghold was there because God had sent prosperity. But the people were saying, our confidence is the citadel. Our confidence is the stronghold. As long as we've got the citadel and the stronghold, we are fine. And God says, seek me that you may live. As long as you've got me, you're fine. Judah, later on in Jerusalem, would say, we've got the temple. We've got the temple. We've got the temple. God says, you need to have me. The temple's a building, nothing more without me. It's the same, it's the same sort of theme. Um, I loathe the arrogance of Jacob. I detest his citadels. Therefore, I will deliver up the city and all that it contains. And then there's this little parable. And Amos has got these delightful little parables. That the first time you read them, you think, what in the world are you talking about? But it's a wonderful one. It will be if ten men are left in one house, they will die. So ten men in one house, they will die. Then one's uncle or his undertaker will lift him up to carry out his bones from the house. And there's obviously a second person searching in the house as well, going deeper into the house. And he will say to the one who is in the innermost part of the house, is anyone else with you? Did anybody else survive? Are there any other survivors? And that one will say, no one. Then this is the strange part. Then he will answer, keep quiet. For the name of the Lord is not to be mentioned. How are we to understand that? I think what's happening here, the picture that, I, that uh, Amos is trying to create is, you know, these, these people are in the house, they're looking for survivors. It's, it's terrible, it's horrible. Ten out of ten have died. And they died because of God. There's two searchers, and the one searcher says, anybody else? No, there's nobody else. Well, shh, don't mention God's name. Don't mention God's name. Imagine if he hears and knows we're here. You know, sometimes kids do that. It's a little sort of a bit of superstition, you know. Don't mention the name of whatever. Whistle, sing a song, you know. Just distract your mind from that. That's, that's the same thing here. We don't want to mention God's name. Because can you imagine if God hears and God comes? It's the same nation who at the beginning was saying, I said, Lord, you hammer those heathen people, those wicked people. That same nation is saying now, shh, don't mention Jehovah. Don't mention God. Whatever happens, we don't want God to hear us and find us. It's terrible, isn't it? It's terrible. For behold, verse 11, the Lord is going to command that the great house be smashed to pieces and the small house to fragments. <laughs> it's not just the big guys. It's also the small guys. Amos goes on. The closing verses summarize the judgment to come. In verse 12, there are two pictures that are used to ensure... To, sorry. There are two pictures that are used to show the entire inappropriateness of an action. So those first two pictures, it's totally inappropriate for horses to run on rocks. It's totally inappropriate to plow rocks with oxen or your NIV, because the translation here is a bit vague, it's a bit uncertain, to plow the sea. Those two things are totally inappropriate. They, they should never happen. Horses should never run on rocks. Oxen should never plow rocks or plow the sea. And you should never, second part of verse 12, turn justice into poison and righteousness into wormwood. Remember the two things God wanted back in chapter 5, verse 24? Justice and righteousness. And yet they've twisted them so much that it's poison and wormwood. You who rejoice in Lodabar, Lodabar, a, people, a, 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 a city that they had conquered, 
and say, have we not by our own strength taken Karnaim for ourselves? Remember, those were good, heady days of, of expansion and power. They're saying, we did it. We did it. God says, no. I'm going to raise up a nation against you, O house of Jacob. Sorry, O house of Israel, declares the Lord God of hosts. And they will afflict you from the entrance of Hamath to the brook of the Arabah. See, they looked around at all their conquered cities. They felt so secure with, with their present position, so secure. And God says, no, I'm going to judge you. And so the third and the final sermon ends with this promised certainty of a severe and serious judgment from the Lord. Let me close by saying this, please. And I say it carefully, but you know, the lion roars, who shall not fear? The Lord has spoken, who shall not prophesy? Let's, God, what are you saying to us? Could it be, and because we're here, if I was preaching this in Zimbabwe, I promise you I'd apply it in exactly the same way, but just change the one word. Could it be that the people of God here in Ireland back in Zimbabwe, but here in Ireland, may in several ways resemble the people of God in Amos's day. Self-satisfied, complacent, comfortable, hypocritical, uncaring of the poor, unconcerned about justice, corrupt even as we sing and dance and pray and praise and attend worship services. And could it be That God hates that as much as he hated it in Israel's day. How many of us, I wonder, are grieving over the ruin of Joseph? I'd like to give you about a minute just to quietly reflect and pray, and then we're going to sing straight after that. Um, I'm going to sit down as well, so uh, wonderful musicians, if you'd like to just start... After about a minute, please.